Our New Testament reading will be 2 Timothy chapter 1, so you might want to turn there while he comes. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we're thankful for so many things, even in the midst of the turmoil that we see around about, Lord, we are so thankful that we have you, our rock, on which we stand. And Lord, we just ask now as we open your book that you would feed us, that you would minister to us, encourage us, bless us, Lord, and just give us a, a greater hope and a greater faith and the ability to stand firm in you regardless of what circumstances might bring. Lord, bless us as we look into your word. For Christ's sake and in his name, amen. So let's read uh, the first, the whole first chapter of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Make sure I got the right Timothy here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, in Christ Jesus, to, Thim to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, that the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, looking to, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I might be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that is in you as well. And for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound word which you have heard from me, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well that what, he's, what services he rendered at Ephesus. 
So what I want to focus on this morning is verses 10 and or 2 through 12, but let's read uh, just one more time. Let's read uh, 8 through 12, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him on that day. So, the verses previous to 10, 11, and 12, which are really part of a very long sentence, a long theme, uh, speak of the reality of suffering. Uh, I was uh, somewhat torn to uh, use that as a text, but I had actually uh, preached from that some time back, so I thought well, I wouldn't repeat it, but uh, it speaks of the, the reality of suffering, and of course we know that the scripture speaks much of suffering. Uh, Jesus said that we would be sent out as sheep among the wolves, uh, warning those that he wrote it to that they would suffer for the sake of the gospel. We also see that we need to be prepared to endure the shame for the sake of the cross. Uh, there are some things for which we should feel shame, and there are other things, uh, namely Christ and his cross, for which we should not feel shame at all. First uh, Peter 4 makes a distinction between suffering for righteousness and suffering for our own foolishness. Verses 8 and 9 speak of the sovereignty of God, uh, clearly in salvation, but uh, also in the midst of the suffering for the gospel. And at the very heart, at the very centerpiece, we have the grace of God. Verse 9 tells us of the purpose and the grace of God and that grace is that which verse 10 looks back on when it says, but now this grace has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. This grace was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, or we could say from before time began. Paul goes on with his explanation by saying, but now it has been revealed by the appearing of Christ. In other words, he's telling us that what has been hidden, or at best seen only in shadows and types, has now been revealed. You will too. He says, the grace according to which the elect of God are saved and called, that was given to them in Christ before the world was, yet lay hidden in the heart of God, in his thoughts, counsel, and covenant, and in Christ Jesus, in the types and shadows and sacrifices and 
prophecies and promises of the Old Testament, but it is now made manifest in the clearness, freeness, and abundance of it by the appearance of Christ as a Savior in human nature who has come full of grace and truth and through whom there is a plentiful exhibition of it to the sons of men. So what did he do? What did he accomplish by his appearing? Look at the second half of verse 10. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. To be more specific, he abolished the law of sin and death, which is the cause of the second death. The word translated abolished here literally means to be utterly defeated or put out of commission. He did not abolish physical death, of course, but spiritual death by which men are separated from God eternally. Christ did die in the place of men, and though he died, he did not remain under the power of death, but overcame it by his resurrection. He rose again and triumphed over it, and the keys to death and Hades are in his hand. He totally put death out of commission. We hear the words of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And what else? Well, he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Another way we can say it is that he brought regeneration. This is how he saved us, according to Titus chapter 3, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. He brought them to light. Second uh, Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. Acts 26, 18 says, To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. The words of Christ himself. This light, this regeneration, is the immortality which the gospel promises to believers. Now look at verse 11. It says, For which I was appointed, your version may say called, a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Now remember back to Acts chapter 9, the account of Saul's conversion. And in verse 15 and 16 it says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And a little further along in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says of himself, And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and truth. The gist of it is that Paul was divinely appointed to this threefold task. And then on to verse 12, which is a continuation of the same theme that, as we said, uh, began back in verse 8. He says, For this reason I also suffer these things. So here we see that Paul joins the company of others who suffered, of Joseph and Jeremiah, Daniel, John the Baptist, Peter. The list goes on. 
and after it's all said and done, the place of dishonor among men may well end up being the place of highest honor before God. So we know that Paul was in prison, he was in chains, he was in Nero's dungeon because he had offended the Jews by preaching to the Gentiles. He defended the Gentiles by introducing a new religion and coming against their idolatry and superstition. He was appointed to suffer these things. They were according to the purpose of God. His way of tempering and authenticating the gospel message. Paul knew this and he accepted it without hesitation. And he continues his statement by adding that he was not ashamed. He was not ashamed of the gospel for which he suffered. He would have been ashamed if he had been in prison as a thief or a murderer, but he was suffering for the cause and the likeness of Christ, and he was unashamed in that service. He also here stimulates others, including ourselves, to follow that example. And then he makes what we would refer to as a confession and we know it well because it's contained in the words of of a favorite hymn he says i know whom i've believed and i am convinced that he is able to guard which i have entrusted to him until that day a spiritual knowledge of christ i'm hoping pope cheyenne cheyenne sit up i want you to hear this a spiritual knowledge of Christ is necessary for faith to him. An unknown Christ cannot be the object of faith. No, we cannot see him or perceive him with our physical senses, but nevertheless, we can know him. Hebrews 11.1, 1, he's the substance and the evidence of things not seen. We can know him. We must have at least some knowledge of him as the object of our faith. Genuine faith must rest upon something. Its ability to trust is related to what it knows about its object. Now, I'm hope, hoping you're willing to indulge me. I've read a rather lengthy quote, again, from John Gill. But, uh, uh, I'm going to do it anyway. But I'm an elder. I can get away with it. But anyway on the topic of faith on the topic of genuine faith john gill says this knowledge and faith go together they that truly know christ believe in him and the more they know of him the more strongly do they believe in him those who spiritually and savingly know christ have seen the glories of his person and the fullness of his grace and they approve of him as their savior being every way suitable to them and disprove of all others they love him above all others and with all the, their hearts they put their trust in him and trust him with all they have and they know whom they trust what an able willing suitable and complete savior he is there's more this knowledge what they have of him is not for themselves but from the Father who reveals him to them and in them and from himself who gives them an understanding 
that they may know him and from the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And this knowledge is practical. This leads to obedience from the principle of love to Christ and is of, of a soul humbling nature and appropriates Christ to a man's self and has always some degree of certainty in it. And though it's imperfect, it's progressive, and even a small measure of it is saving and has eternal life connected with it, and the faith which accompanies it terminates on the object known is the grace of God by which man sees Christ and the riches of his grace. This grace causes us to go to him with a sense of need. It takes hold of him as Savior, receives and embraces him, commits it all to him, trusts him with all, leans and lives upon him, and walks on in him till it receives the end of faith, even eternal salvation. End of quote. On this statement, I know whom I have believed, Calvin gives us this insight. He says, this is the only place of refuge to which all believers ought to resort. Whenever the world reckons them to be condemned and ruined men, namely to reckon it enough that God approves of them, for what would be the result if they depended upon men? First John 5, 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. This faith is also spoken of in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Now, the other side of the coin is that he who does not have this truth sealed upon his heart will continually be shaken back and forth as a leaf in a gale. And now this last statement where he says, For I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to keep which that which I have entrusted to him until that day. The phrase, what I have entrusted to him, literally means what I have deposited with him. And we must determine just what Paul means when he makes this statement. And there are a few different ways of looking at it, but one that we can look at that's true to the text would be to say it's all that God has made you and all that God has given you. That's what we're to entrust to him. It's helpful if we think of it in terms of investing or depositing our lives with Christ, knowing that he will guard what's given to him. The term deposit, as used in the culture at the time of the writing of Second Timothy, meant to leave your valuables in the care of a trusted friend while you were gone away on a trip. You see, until you have deposited your life with Christ, all your knowledge about him and your interest in spiritual things are of no value. You must make the deposit before the investment can begin to benefit you. So crucial is the question, how do I deposit my life with Christ? Paul says that he knew whom he believed. He didn't say, I know what I have believed, although he did know what he believed, but rather he says, I know whom I have believed. And there's a vast 
difference between knowing about Christ and knowing Christ personally. Of course, you cannot know Christ personally until you know about him. You must first know the facts of the gospel. You must hear about Christ and the facts recorded in the Bible, and you must believe that they're true. But true Christianity involves entering into and maintaining a personal relationship with him where you grow to know God more and more. And as your knowledge of Christ grows, you trust him more and more. And it's fair to say that maturity can be measured by being able to trust Christ through the most dire circumstances, even such as those that Paul was enduring at the time. Now, trust, make a little illustration here. Trust is at the heart of the banking industry. You wouldn't take your check and deposit it at the bank that's a trailer along the side of the road that has a homemade sign that says Fast Eddie's Bank. You wouldn't go to a bank where you walked in and the tellers all look like the people who stand out in front of Walmart begging for money. Until you, let's see, so you're going to look for a bank that is a has a decent looking building, has a good reputation, and has a pleasant, reliable looking teller when you walk in to the front door of the bank. You, until you've made this basic transaction spiritually, you do not have eternal life and you do not have a relationship with Christ. And it's not too strong to say that until you have deposited all that you have and all that you are, you're wasting your life. As we already referred to some 30 years before the writing of his letter to Timothy, Paul had made that deposit on the Damascus Road. At that time, he let go of all that he had been trusting in and stood alone on the revelation that Christ himself had made to him. We saw all that that uh, Paul had been trusting in uh, Philippians 3 just a few weeks ago. Uh, all that meant something to him all of a sudden uh, meant nothing to him. Now some may ask, can I trust life with part of my Christ, part of my life with Christ now and give him the rest later? And uh, the Bible is clear that trusting in Christ is an all or nothing proposition. You cannot, you entrust everything you have to him, everything that you are aware of. Now, there, over time, we know that there'll be things that Christ reveals to us that we have not yet given over. And, of course, at that time, we repent and we we include that with the rest of it. Just trust him for eternal life is to deposit all our life with him. There's a story I read about a family who put their elderly grandmother on a plane, her first plane trip of her life. She wanted to go back to where she came from and visit some relatives before she died. And so she went and enjoyed her trip and came home. And as some of the family came around to see her, some of them playfully asked her if the plane had held her up okay. And she had to admit that it did. But she said, but I didn't put my whole weight down on it. And that's how some of us have in the future. Maybe some of us today have uh, approached our 
life with Christ. Maybe we haven't put our whole weight down, and certainly we must. Some may say, if I deposit all my life with Christ, does that mean I have to be a missionary in Africa? And the answer is maybe, maybe not. It does mean that you have to be willing to be a missionary in Africa if the Lord calls you to do that. Trusting Christ means that you trust that he is good and that he knows the best for your life. If he wants you to be a missionary in Africa, you'd be miserable being anything else. You've got to trust him for that. You hand him a blank check and allow him to fill in the details. And you could also ask, will my deposit be secure? And Paul knew that Christ is completely trustworthy. The knowledge grows over time, but personal knowledge of Christ is the key to assurance because you discover that he is totally trustworthy and fully capable of filling his promises. Uh, he is able. If he's not able, then we shouldn't trust him, but he is. But if he is, he's never failed any investor ever who's completely entrusted him with a soul. Here's just one of the promises from Scripture. My sheep hear my voice, and, they, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's a secure investment. And still yet we might wonder, is this investment wise? Will it bring me a good return? Well, in verse 12, there at the end, Paul says, he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. He's referring, of course, to the day of judgment when all accounts will be settled before God. If his life is if this life is all that there is, then we've live a cruel and unfair life. But uh, here is a godly, self-sacrificing apostle in a dungeon, while the perverted lunatic lives in luxury and rules the Roman Empire. Paul's executed while Nero parties on. And of course, that's not fair, but we know that that day is yet to come. When he was preaching to the intellectuals in Athens, Paul proclaimed that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. If Jesus is risen, and he is, then that day is coming. No one will get away with anything. All wrongs will be brought to light and punished. All who have trusted in Christ will not face judgment, but will stand in the presence of his glory, glory, blameless with great joy. In light of eternity, it is with a secure and wise investment to deposit your life with Christ Jesus. Have you made that deposit with your life? So that's where you begin. You commit everything that you have and you are to Christ, convinced that he is able to guard your deposit till that day. And what happens between then and now really doesn't matter all that much as long as we are in his will. This life is just a vapor, but what we do here and now has an impact on our eternity. We must 
not be ashamed of Christ or be fearful of the suffering for the gospel. It's not about us. It's all about him and being witnesses of the purposes and the grace of God. What is man's purpose here on earth? To bring glory to God, and we can bring glory to God, no greater glory than by trusting him through suffering, not for our sin and folly, but for the cause of Christ and his gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the, the wonder of your word, the power that's in it, and for the Holy Spirit who takes it and enlightens it to us. Lord, we thank you for the blessing that it is to open your book and be fed from it. We ask that you would bless what we've done here for Christ's sake. Amen.